Good morning, folks. Good to see you this morning. For 40 years, uh, I did this full time, and every time we came to this Sunday, set the clock ahead Sunday, when I had a bunch of associate pastors, I'd assign that Sunday to them. Because the preacher's half awake, the congregation's half awake, and the crowd's half what it normally is. That's just the way, uh, the way things worked. And it always reminded me of this uh, story. Maybe you've heard it before. It's an old story. A story about this uh, young preacher who just got out of seminary, been out a few months, and he was serving this little country church way out in the boondocks. Uh, on a good Sunday, 30 people would show up. And most Sundays were good because this was a very, very faithful bunch. In fact, they had a rule. <clears throat> no matter what the weather was, you do not cancel church. And so uh, this one Saturday night, uh, they got hit by a major blizzard. I mean, snow coming down, coming down, coming down. But the preacher knew the rules, so he got up in the morning and he trudged over to the church through the snow and turned on the lights and figured nobody's going to show up today. And uh, uh, his organist never showed up. and He was just about ready to turn out the lights and walk out when the, when the door opened. And old farmer Fred walked in, faithful farmer Fred. And uh, he walked in and he took his usual seat in the second row on the aisle in and looked up. And so the preacher got started. No organist, but uh, Farmer Fred had already taken one of the bulletins, you know, with all the stuff in for Sunday morning worship. So the preacher had him stand and they sang the first hymn without an organ and then the opening prayer and then a uh, confession of sin and uh, another hymn and oh and a responsive reading you got to do a responsive reading anybody remember responsive readings let, let okay back and then an offering took an offering and the prayer and it was always a long prayer uh, long long prayer and long prayer and then the preacher got up and did his sermon and it was long sermon and uh, then they got done, they sang the final hymn and the benediction and the doxology, and the preacher got up during the doxology, and he walked to the back door. So like he usually did, he could greet the members of the congregation. And old faithful farmer Fred came by and shook his hands, and the preacher, young preacher said, Good to see you this morning, Fred. Uh, uh, you know, what did you, what did you think of worship today? And Farmer Fred said, well, you know, was, when I got a whole load of hay and I bring it out to my cows and only one shows up, I don't feed them the whole load. <laughs> now, if you are wondering what that means for this morning, absolutely nothing. <laughs> Nothing at all. No, it's, uh, it's good to be together. And uh, hi to all of those of you who might be watching online now or later. We're going to look at a story today. Um, this, is, this is Lent. And what I like to do during Lent, and I get the sense that Aaron likes to do that too, is take some time and, and, and look at stories in the life of Jesus. So we're going to look at 
one of those uh, today. Would you pray with me? Uh, God, as we approach this scripture and this story and get into the life of Jesus for a bit this morning, we pray that you will bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So here from Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 11. Soon afterward, and afterward as Jesus had uh, done a miracle just before this one, but soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. It's a little village, out-of-the-way village. I've been there. It's out of the way. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier. They were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up, began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet had appeared among them. They said, God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. The news just kept spreading. So... 24 months ago today, two years ago today, I was in a very different place than I am today in more ways than one. I was literally in a hospital bed at Iowa Methodist Hospital in Des Moines. And uh, to my immediate right and up just behind my back where you have to turn to look at it. There was a great big, I'm I'm talking big, brown bag of liquid. uh, And it was attached to a tube that went into a portal that was in my chest. And uh, it was just drip, dripping away. It was poison. Now, we sanitize things as best we can, so we call it chemotherapy. But it's basically poison. Now, it's a good kind of poison because it's designed to kill the cancer, but it does damage to the rest of the body as well. So this was the first of six rounds of chemotherapy that I was to have. That meant four straight days, 24 hours a day, with a bag like that up there dripping poison into my body. Four different really big bags. Then I'd go home for 10 days, I'd come back, another four big bags over four days, and I'd go home for 10 days, and I'd come back, and uh, four more days drip drip into my body. Well, it just kept wearing me down, which is fairly normal, but it hit me hard, uh, really hard. And after that 
third one. So I'm halfway through the six cycles of chemotherapy. After that third one, <clears throat> I crashed. Um, I mean, it almost killed me. I'm not talking figuratively. It almost killed me. Uh, but I survived and uh, spent the next 30 days just about in the hospital, 28 days in the hospital. And uh, um, during that time, they did what they, they, they scheduled halfway through the treatment. After that third treatment, they scheduled to do a, a scan to see what was happening with the, with the cancer, just to see how the chemotherapy was progressing. So they did that scan, and they announced to me that it came back clean, that there was no cancer. Um, now, most of the doctors said it's in remission, they used, but one doctor said, no, it's gone. It's gone. Uh, halfway through the treatments, it was gone. Now, was that a miracle? I don't know what to call it, but I do consider it a gift. I mean, uh, I have a test coming up in 12 days to see if it's still clean, but, you know, I've had two years. It's a gift, all right? I don't know if it's a miracle. But before us this morning is a genuine, concrete example of a miracle. There's no other way to describe it. Jesus, his disciples, and a large crowd of followers were about to enter the village of, uh, of Nain, just a tiny little village between Nazareth and Capernaum. As they approached the town gate, Jesus and his entourage uh, met a funeral procession on the way out to the cemetery to bury a young man of the village. The women of the village had treated the body with sweet-smelling perfumes and spices. They had carefully wrapped his body in linens, leaving only the face exposed. The young man's corpse was being carried to its gravesite on a wooden stretcher. Dozens of mourners went before it, and behind it, immediately behind it, walked his mother. It was a sad, sad picture that confronted Jesus. Death and funeral processions are almost always sad pictures, but even more so when the corpse is that of someone so young. The scene is the reverse of what it should be. It's the opposite of what we expect. Mothers don't give birth to their children with the thought that the child will die before the mother. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Not the way it's supposed to be. Mothers give birth to children, raise them and release them, and then watch them have children of their own. And if a mother is particularly blessed, she gets to look on as her, the children of her children have children. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way it's supposed to be. The young man in this story died out of turn. One his turn. Mom was next in line, not him. 
So this is a sad picture because the mother is about to bury her son. More than that, it is her only son. And this picture was made all the more sad by the fact that the dead boy's mother was a widow. Now, in the time of Jesus, widows who lost their sons were in dire straits. There, were, there was no insurance, no government safety net. A woman had no legal rights, no education, no means to care for herself. In Jesus' day, women depended upon men to take care of them and provide for them. You don't have to like it, but it's the way it was. First her father, then her husband, and when necessary, her sons provided for her. The loss of this son, her only son, meant that this widow was now without anyone to care for her. She would be alone, destitute, dependent upon the haphazard generosity of others. Says the Bible, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Jesus' heart went out to her. He felt her loss. He understood her predicament. He cared about her plight. His heart went out to her. He wanted to do something to help her. And that's the first thing We want to see clearly in this story. It's a simple truth. (laughs) People matter. People matter. People matter to Jesus. And because Jesus reveals to us the very character and the very nature of God, because Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, we can believe and we can know that people matter to God. And that matters to us. An old preacher by the name of G. G. A. Stuart Kennedy was an English chaplain uh, during World War One, and uh, uh, he said that during that war he came to believe that life's most basic, fundamental question is this: What is God like? What's God like? This revelation came to him, he says, while visiting a wounded soldier in a hospital. What I want to know, said the soldier, is what is God like? Said the soldier, I never really thought about it much before the, before the war. I simply took it for granted, but now it's different. When I am transferred into a new battalion, the first thing I want to know is, what the colonel is like. He runs the show. And it makes a lot of difference to me what sort of chap the colonel is. Now, I'm also in the battalion of humanity, and I want to know what the colonel of this world is like. I I want to know, what is God like? Don't we all want to know the answer to that question? What is God like? Friends, Jesus came to tell us. And Jesus came to show us who God is and what God is like. Jesus came to settle that question once 
and for all time. And here's the answer, short as I can make it. Through what Jesus said and by what Jesus did, Jesus revealed that God is love and love is God, pure, unadulterated, unconditional, unlimited, indescribable, indestructible, infinite love. And that people matter to a loving God. An author by the name of Bob Benson writes about sending his son off to college. He says this, Nearly a year ago, Peg, that's his wife, Peg and I had a very hard week. Sudden, uh, Sunday night, we were home, and our, our son Mike was 700 miles away. Now, we've been through this before. Bob Jr. had gone away to college, and we had gathered ourselves together until we'd gotten over it. So we thought we knew how to handle separation pretty well. But we came away lonely and blue. Oh, our hearts were filled with pride at a fine young man, and our minds were filled with memories from tricycles to commencements. But deep down inside somewhere, we just ached with loneliness and pain. Somebody said, you still have three at home, three fine kids. There's still plenty of noise, plenty of ball games to go to, plenty of responsibilities, plenty of laughter, plenty of everything. Except Mike. And in parental math, five minus one just doesn't equal plenty. Then Bob Benson addresses the reader. Says, and I was thinking about God. He has plenty of children, plenty of artists, plenty of singers, carpenters, candlestick makers, teachers, preachers, plenty of everybody except you. And all of them can, together can never take your place. And there will always be an empty spot in God's heart and a vacant chair at God's table when you're not home. And if once in a while it seems God's crowding you a bit, try to forgive him. It may be one of those nights when God misses you so much he can hardly stand it. I love that. People matter. To God. I matter to God. You matter to God. Every person you care about, every person you know matters to God. We all matter to God. And on that long ago day, a poor widow from an out of the way place called Nain mattered to God. Listen to me now. I want you to hear this and hear it well. It's so important to this story. This miracle was done for the widow not for her dead son. This miracle was done for the widow, not for her dead son. Jesus' understanding of death included the thought that the young man was somehow, some way, safely, gloriously, eternally in the care of God. Today, said Jesus to the thief on the cross, you will be with me in paradise. The widow 
of Nain's son had passed over to the other side, to paradise, to that place or that dimension where God exists in all of his, in all of his glory, where there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The miracle was not for the young man, but for his widowed mother in her desperate human earthly need. And the message of the miracle is that people matter and God cares. Look again at Christ's response. When the Lord saw her, not the dead boy, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Now, the Greek word which we translate here as heart literally means to be moved to the very depths of one's being. His heart went out to her. Here's the interesting thing. The root meaning of that word in the Greek is bowels. It was a gut-wrenching feeling that came to Jesus. So his heart went out to her. And it is a word, by the way, that when used in the Gospels and the Bible, is only used of Jesus. When Jesus saw all kinds of sick people around him, he felt it at the very depths of his being. His heart went out to them, and he heals many. When he saw Hungry people at a hillside camp meeting, his heart went out to them and he fed them. When he saw the lost and the lonely, when he saw the dejected and the rejected, his heart went out to them and he became their friend. Regardless of their plight, whenever Jesus saw hurting people in their need, his heart went out to him. And it moved him to action. It did not evaporate into mere emotion. And would you notice with me the compassion of Jesus for this widow prompted him to take a great risk for her. He reached out and touched the burial stretcher. Now, that may not sound like much of a risk to you, but in Jesus' day, it was a great risk. A dead body was considered unclean, and so too with anything that dead body touched. Touch a dead body or anything that body had touched, and you were unclean. It was a clear and serious taboo, a violation of the rules, a violation of the law, unbreakable without consequence, especially for a teacher like Jesus. Break the rule, and you were considered unclean. For seven days, you were considered unclean. And the process of ritual cleansing was complicated and involved and time-consuming. This Jesus knew. And yet he reacted immediately, reached out to touch the untouchable. He took a risk in order to help this mother in her need. Do you know the story of James Phipps? James Phipps was a young boy whose name hardly anyone knows, 
But he took a great risk in order to help all humanity, including you and me. The year was 1796. Smallpox was the scourge of Europe and the New World. A scientist by the name of Edward Jenner was hot in the pursuit of a vaccine that would halt the spread of this devastating and fatal disease. Jenner observed that persons who developed a similar but far less serious disease called cowpox seemed immune to smallpox, but there was only one way to prove the theory. When a young girl of his acquaintance took ill with cowpox, Jenner injected James Phipps with diseased fluid from one of the spots on her hand. Phipps came down with small cowpox, but he quickly recovered. Next, Jenner inoculated James Phipps with matter from a deadly case of smallpox. Phipps' life was literally on the line. If the experiment failed, the boy would die. But the experiment did not fail. Jenner was right. James Phipps never developed the disease, and the smallpox vaccine became a marvel of medical history. Hear this now. James Phipps, not Edward Jenner the scientist, but a young boy named James Phipps is the hero of the story. He's the one who had taken a great risk and millions of lives were saved. And I'd wager none of you knew his name before I just spoke it. When Jesus reached out to touch a young man's casket, there was risk in that reach. And we who have followed the Jesus story, we're not surprised at that. After all, this is the same Jesus who touched lepers, the same Jesus who invited society's rejects to follow him, the same Jesus who sat down to dinner in the homes of tax collectors and outcasts, he was always reaching out in compassion and love, and there was always risk in that reach. The greatest risk of all was in his greatest reach. When the Son of God left the throne room of heaven to embark upon his earthly mission to seek and to save a lost and broken world, so loved by God. It was his greatest reach with his greatest risk. He became one of us. He lived among us. It was risky business for the Son of the Most High to become as vulnerable as we are, as weak as we are, at times as helpless as we are. There is one more message to be seen in today's Jesus story. Would you stay with me? Look again to this text. Jesus then said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man, I like the way Luke describes it here. He doesn't say the young man. He says the dead, he wants to make sure we know this kid was dead. 
The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. There are three incidents in the Bible where Jesus raises the dead back to life. This son of the widow from Nain, the little daughter of Jairus, the priest, and Lazarus, Jesus' good friend and the brother of the sisters, Mary and Martha. These three, only these three. Jesus did not raise to life every corpse he came into contact with or even every friend of his who died. He didn't raise up John the Baptist. He didn't raise up his own father, Joseph, but he did raise these three. And with these three resurrections, Jesus and the God who sent him was saying to us that people matter, that God cares, and here it comes. Even in the face of death, God's love and God's power will bring comfort and hope and ultimate victory. Folks, death is real. How's that for news you've never heard before? Death is real. People die, and nearly all, even in Jesus' day, nearly all do make it to the grave without being rescued, without being restored to life. And even the three we talked about eventually died. Yet the message of Jesus is that God's people are not without hope. Death, even death, will not have the final say, God will. And God loves life, not death. God loves people, not the grim reaper. Would you roll back the clock with me for a moment? Not the one you turned forward last night, but I thought that was an interesting way to put it. Would you go back with me? It's the mid-1970s. I'm just a pup like that young preacher out of seminary, my second, third year of seminary, out of seminary, serving in a church in Phoenix, Arizona. And I got this invitation. It was to to attend a lecture that was taking place down at Arizona State University in, in Tempe, The lecturer was to be uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Now, Dr. Kubler-Ross had written a book just a few years earlier, uh, published in 1969. It was called On Death and Dying. And it was, there were pastoral counselors, social workers, psychiatrists, psychologists, Uh, the medical professions, all of these folks were looking at this book, consuming this book, because in the book, she listed what she called the five stages of grief. And I wager many of you have heard of those, the the five stages of grief. So I went to that lecture. I was curious, and she lectured us for a good long while, and she spelled out her research. All of her resources had been done with terminally ill patients, patients who were dying, patients who knew they were dying, 
and she had some medical students with her who helped her in that endeavor. They compiled all this information. She wrote the book. She established the five stages. It's, it's science, so it's all, it, a good science is constantly being challenged, and this as well. But this has stood up pretty well over the years. Here were the five. The, uh, denial, that's the quick one. Almost everyone, no, it can't be. They got the diagnosis wrong. Can't be me. That one passes, we're told, fairly quickly. Uh, denial. Then comes anger. And that anger can be a people, it can just be in frustration, impatience, anger towards God. Denial, anger, then bargaining. You know, God, if you do this, I'll do this. Right? If my life is saved, I'll go on to save all kinds of people some way. I'll dedicate my life to teaching in the inner city. I, bargaining. Okay? Denial, anger, bargaining. Then depression. Normally that, that one lasts the longest. Down, blue, knowing it's coming. Uh, and the interesting thing about these is people don't necessarily have to start at the same place. And they can go back and jump back. It, it's interesting. But the fifth stage is acceptance. Now, acceptance is not resignation. You get the difference? Resignation says, you know, it's going to happen, so I might as well just die and be done with it. Resignation. No acceptance. Yes, it's going to happen. And the person, you know, processes it, often with family and loved ones, right? Got, okay. So, <clears throat> I'm at this lecture. At the end of the lecture, Dr. Cooper Ross opens it up for questions and answers, and there were lots of them. It was a fascinating time. And I, I just, I remember this. So, you know how you have some things you just remember really clearly? right? And this was one of mine. And, and I remember I was sitting way in the back. I had no intention of asking any questions. I was just there to observe. And I didn't ask any questions. But one guy, he was over to my left, no doubt a preacher. He raised his hand, she called on him, and he said, what about the person who believes in the resurrection? By the way, it was this time of the year. It was Lent. Easter was coming. Pretty sure that's one reason he asked the question. What about those who believe in the resurrection? This is what she said. And folks, I'm, I wrote it down. And I am pretty sure I can give it to you word for word from her mouth right now. <clears throat> she said, In my experience... The person who believes intrinsically in the resurrection has reached the stage of acceptance before they even become ill. Now that's arguable. Okay? 
<laughs> That's arguable. But that was her experience. She dealt with people, people who believed in a resurrection had reached the place of acceptance before they even became ill. Food for thought as you come to Easter? I think so. Let's pray together.